Today we're going to basically talk about a few people, um, and this is going to be just part one, um, probably part 1A of a larger sort of discussion and study. Um, but there's a few people in the, the sort of uh, fourth and fifth centuries, basically, who really serve as um, they, 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 what they contributed uh, in the life of the church of their time um, were sort of foundational principles uh, to what led to the, the Reformation. There was elements to their, their emphasis and teaching or to certain stands that they took um, in their time that, that were sort of precursors in, in many ways to uh, the Reformation. And so this was, you know, this was a, a, a thousand years prior that this, this kind of thing is going on. And, and these are men that are that uh, basically created some level of foundational um, principle or, or stand that was uh, tapped into in subsequent uh, times that we would you know, hold dear in terms of the Reformation doctrine and what that means for us. So um, there's, there's several of them, but I want to start by talking about two as a point of focus, and we're, we're going to culminate in leading up to talking about Augustine. So we're headed toward Augustine, and we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about Augustine. Um, but the first two that I want to kind of just give you a little bit of background information on and talk about uh, a little bit here is uh, Ambrose of Milan and John Chrysostom. Uh, John of Constantinople is another way to identify or understand this person. Uh, Ambrose of Milan lived from 339 to 397 A.D., and John Chrysostom lived from 349 to 407 A.D. So they were contemporaries, mostly. I mean, there were some, some differences there, but they lived in the same era. One was obviously in Milan in the west, in Italy, in, in the western part of the empire. And, of course, John Chrysostom was in Constantinople in the east. And that's significant, too, as we'll, we'll try to uh, um, untangle in, in a few minutes. Starting with Ambrose, Ambrose in 373 A.D. Uh, in Milan, the bishop of Milan, Oxentius, died. And, and this was normal course. Bishops lived and they died and they had to be replaced. And there was probably you know, some level of, of um, contention for that post that would that would emerge, that would be sort of a normal course and, and the kinds of rivalries or, or different dispositions of leadership that people wanted to put their, their person in place, you know, their, their, their guy, they wanted him to be in place. But this particular post and this particular man and this, at this particular time, uh, this was not a normal course kind of passing of one bishop and the need to fill this post. This was a, a, an event that spurred an enormous amount of controversy and really ultimately threatened the peace in the entire city of Milan, which was an important city in the, in the western part of the empire. And the reason for that was that Oxentius was an Arian theologian. He was actually appointed and put into his post by the Arian-leaning emperor Constantius II of the Constant, Constantine line. And so... Now, you remember, who remembers what Arianism is? We talked about this when we talked about the Council of Nicaea. I'm going to be testing your memory here. But who remembers the basic essential tenets of Arianism? 
Um, no. I don't. I don't know. I didn't know how to answer that without being just like flat out. I mean, like, it's not even kind of. So I can't say you know close, but no, that's not it. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Can you edit this out? This is, sounds rude. It sounds short. Please. Um, but no, that's not. That's not it. Arianism. Yeah, had to do with the, the, the nature and essence of Christ and his deity, okay? So remember that the, the big controversy, the big theological controversy that led to the first major council, the Council of Nicaea, had to do with the Arian controversy, the, the, the theology of Arius, which basically said that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was begotten of the Father at a point in time. He was created, in other words. He was a creature distinct from the Father and is therefore subordinate to him as the Son of God. In other words, Jesus Christ was not God incarnate, eternal, co-equal with the Father. In other words, he was begotten of the Father. He was the Son of God. He was at some point. There was a point in time when he was not. That was one of the statements that sort of was a demarcation point in Arian theology. And so this, this controversy over Arianism spawned this council, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, in which they summarily rebuked and repelled this heretical doctrine around who Christ was, his essence and his nature, his deity and his full humanity. And at that council, they wrote the Nicene Creed, which essentially affirmed Christ's full deity and full humanity. Um, it actually went further than that to, to give a, a, a sort of an understanding of Trinitarian theology or a Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. And, and that was also clarified. And, um, and so Arianism was repudiated by the church. And yet, decades later, there's still an Arian sect within the church, and even amongst the emperor, his, his line of belief, so much so that he appointed this man, Oxentius, to be the bishop of Milan, who was an Arian. So this, this heresy was not, although it was repudiated um, by, the, by the, uh, the ecumenical council of Nicaea, it did not go away, which is a, an important point to remember. None of these things ever go away. They, ever, they never go away. Now, this is a little bit, a little bit of a startling fact of history, that, that it, was, it was not just that it didn't go away, but it still had you know, held positions of prominence in terms of ecclesiastical authority and that kind of thing. But what took place at the death of Oxentius was this uprising of those who would be more orthodox in their understanding of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, the incarnation and these things. So the Orthodox camp, if you will, saw this as their opportunity to get their guy into that, that seat of power, that seat of authority in the church, and to replace this bishop who was, in their minds, heretical, which he was. Um, so this, this, was, this, this put the, the city of Milan around the, the church in an uproar. And a potential for 
riotous violence was, was imminent. Well, Ambrose was the governor of Milan at this time. He was a, a, an official of the, of the empire. He was not a, a, of the clergy. He was an official of the empire. He was also a very effective and popular uh, governor. People really uh, admired him and appreciated his effective governance, his fair and just governance. So he was well-liked by the people of Milan. He also had aspirations for you know, greater career opportunity within the empire. He had ambition toward higher levels of authority within the uh, government of the Roman Empire. But he knew that he, if he didn't take care of this contentious, escalating situation in Milan, centering around the bishopric of Milan and replacing this Arian bishop, that he would not have any opportunity, realistically, to, to be able to have those, those opportunities for future advancement. So he stepped in. He shows up at the church where the debate is reaching a fever pitch. Tempers are flaring, and he steps in and steps before the people. And using sort of the the influence of his reputation, the strength of his reputation, and his powers of rhetoric. He was a trained orator. He was trained in the skills of, of rhetoric. He basically brought calm over the whole proceeding and and established a level of sort of confidence that was palpable. And during that, that assembly, a child yells out, Ambrose Bishop. And to put it into modern contemporary parlance, that went viral. Okay? So consider that a, 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 a tweet or a, a Facebook post or something that went viral. It went viral and the people basically adopted the same kind of chant, the same kind of uh, expectation. They wanted now, and this, if you think about it, this is like, this is a neutral, quote-unquote, kind of opportunity. You're basically bringing in someone who is not coming in with an agenda on one side of the equation or another. He's coming in as a government official. It's an interesting thing to note, though, that that the discernment level of the people or their sense of what the priorities were for someone in a post of spiritual ecclesiastical leadership was not characteristic of training or not associated with theological training or background or the ability to effectively teach the scriptures or any of that. It was, this guy was a good governor of the people he was an effective orator. He, was a, he had an, a, a persuasive ability to, to speak and to bring calm to dissension. Um, and a very effective leader, for sure, but he was not trained as a clergy. However, let's, let's bring him in. So that was, the, that was the, sort of the, the genesis of his rise to this position. This was, however, not Ambrose's desire or part of his plan at all. Listen to what... Uh, Justo Gonzalez says about this, Such an election was not part of Ambrose's plans for his career, and therefore he had recourse to various devices in order to dissuade the people. He didn't want to do this. He goes further. Um, It says when that strategy failed, he repeatedly attempted to escape from the city. (laughs) I don't want it. Uh, but was unsuccessful. Finally, when it became clear that the emperor was gratified with the election of his governor, 
and would be very displeased if Ambrose insisted on his refusal, he agreed to be made Bishop of Milan. So, interesting little turn of events here. You have an Arian-leaning emperor who sees this as a, a way to uh, mitigate the risk of this city going up in flames over this you know, riot over this seat that's really driven by uh, a doctrinal difference, not just any small doctrinal difference, I might add. And so, from the emperor's standpoint, this is a good, pragmatic decision. This is a governance kind of decision. So here again, you see the church and the government very much intertwined. Very difficult to see a distinguishing characteristic between these two enterprises and the decision-making process that goes into establishing leadership structures to making these kinds of important decisions. You still see this strongly in play. And I would just argue that any time you see that occurring in any society, any, any nation-state, any, any country, any city, any town, the, the ultimate culmination point of these kinds of things, historically, if, historical, if history is any teacher, is never good for the ministry of the gospel, for the fruitful work of the church. It's, it's never good. So just kind of keep that in mind. That, that, and, and I think that the, the one thing that I thought about as a practical sort of connection point um, that we have to be, I think, very mindful of and very discerning about is the fact that the, the country that we live in is oriented toward um, individual freedom and liberty. It's oriented toward protecting individual rights in terms of its constitutional documents and these kinds of things. And we, of course, have enjoyed tremendous freedoms of speech, of religious assembly, of all these things that we enjoy, especially by comparison to the rest of the world. I mean, there's no comparison whatsoever. And I think, though, that the the risk that we can find ourselves kind of being tempted by or even succumbing to, the temptation we can succumb to, is an over-equation of our spiritual convictions with political action or policy making. And I think that for the thoughtful, biblically-minded Christian, we have to take pause and very measured steps in in these areas. I was having a conversation, just a very brief conversation uh, this week um, with some of the guys, and, and, uh, you know, just, I was making, we were talking talking about some different things, and I just made the statement. I said, you know, when you really think about um, the practical application of the work and life and ministry and commandments and example of Christ, uh, you, you, you can't find it fitting neatly in any political party whatsoever. You're going to get frustrated at some point or another along the way, if you really are thoughtful about these these things. 
Now, we live in a, a society where we have two major political parties, and you kind of have to land somewhere if you're going to be a participatory citizen in the, in the political process. So I'm not advocating anything other than just recognizing that, that you're going to be voting for something, you're going to be supporting a particular party that's not fully Christian in its orientation, no matter where you land. Now, I do think that there are certain uh, social and cultural issues that are a part of our sort of political discourse that have strong moral implications to them that are sort of unequivocal, they're, they're not confusing, they're not mysterious, they're very clear in Scripture. So don't hear me try to be vague or nebulous about this. I'm just calling us to a standard that is oriented toward understanding who we are in Christ and what that means for what we advocate and how impassioned we become, that we don't become impassioned over a political party's platform. Overly impassioned Christians over a single political party's platform is going to arrive at a place of personal Christian compromise at some point. And so I think that that's the caution, that's a caution for us as believers, that we need to be um, thoughtful and reflective upon the scriptures and on the person of Christ and on Christ in us, the hope of glory, and on what it means to be salt and light in a world that has fallen, not on the winning team in every election. That to me is the, is the, is one thing to be thinking about, especially when you see these, these things taking place in history where there's this, this interwoven relationship between the government structures and the church that forces, at some point or another, compromise. It forces that. It's unavoidable. Have you seen that interview with Ben Shapiro and John MacArthur on politics and Christianity? I, I listened to it. I didn't watch it, oh, yeah. but I listened to it. Yeah. It's excellent. It's good. It's very good. I would, I would recommend it, for sure. Um, okay, so, so that's kind of Ambrose coming to the fore here. And the interesting thing about Ambrose is that he, um, he did not adopt an Arian position. So the whole thing kind of backfired a little bit on this Arian-leaning emperor. Um, some of the key contributions uh, of Ambrose, uh, he helped further, actually, the development of Orthodox Trinitarian theology. And a part of his teaching was he emphasized the importance of the Incarnation. So he did not adopt a... Uh, you know, an Arian-friendly disposition in that post um, as bishop. He also, uh, I think one of, the, one of the striking characteristics of what his contributions were, and by the way, anytime when we start talking about these men, we always have to remember they were men of their time. Uh, we talked about this with Constantine. Even though Eusebius likes to put Constantine on this angelic pedestal as you know, the, the kingdom of God come to earth. He's bringing, he's, you know, Constantine's ushering in the kingdom of God, which wasn't the case at all historically about Constantine. Um, we, you know, we have to be careful that we take, we take the contributions that these men make uh, in, with a grain of salt. Even Augustine. Now, when, I, when you start talking about Augustine, when I mention Augustine, do primarily positive things come to mind in terms of sort of a doctrinal or theological heritage? Do, they, do you think sort of positive notes about him? Well, I'm going to mention to you things that are not at all 
positive. They're contrary to what you would want to affirm and endorse. And that's the case always, right? I mean, that's always the case. So we have to, when, when we talk about, when I'm talking about these men and their contributions, I'm not saying that they were pure as the driven snow and, you know, I would be attending their church today if I could. I mean, I, that's not at all what I'm saying. From a historical perspective, though, there were contributions that they made that had ramifications that were like, you know, the, the ripples of, of a rock being thrown into a lake. It, they, they rippled out, and we'll see them kind of recurring again. A big one for him, for Ambrose, was that he advocated that the church be free and independent of government influence in order for it to best fulfill its mission. That's a big deal at this time. A very, very big deal. The, the, the church at that point, as we talked about before, was so, I think, one way to put it, and I think that some historians would kind of articulate this, was so much in a euphoric state of no longer being under persecution and now receiving all the benefits of imperial power and authority and wealth being bestowed upon it and supporting its advancement and its growth, that there was a certain sort of uh, lethargy of devotion and sort of a spiritual drunkenness on this, this confusion of blessing with materialistic greed and avarice. They, 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 would, they would sort of sanctify what was really just allurements toward worldliness. That these benefits, these blessings, these material benefits, me being elevated to this position or to this post was really a gift of God. And so me and me indulging all the more in my carnal fleshly desires for power, for prestige, for money, for wealth, this was just, this was just part of the blessing of God. It created a, a sort of a drunkenness uh, with people in terms of um, losing all discernment and really pursuing what are just nothing but carnal, worldly passions for, like I said, power, prestige, money, wealth, the things that this world can offer and can provide. Well, Ambrose sort of stood up to that. Um, In fact, he not only stood up to, um, to that, but he also stood up to the emperor on a couple of occasions. Um, in terms of him standing up for the independence of the church and, and really not being influenced by the church in order for it to, excuse me, influenced by the government in order for it to, in order for it to effectively fulfill its mission, um, listen to what Gonzalez said about that. It says, shortly after Ambrose's consecration, the nearby region was ravaged by a band of Goths, this nomadic Germanic sort of tribe that ultimately uh, sacked Rome. So this was a this was a a constant nagging element in the Roman Empire from the north, but ultimately the Goths are what uh, conquered Rome and, and brought about the fall of the Roman Empire. But anyway, shortly after Ambrose's consecration, the nearby region was ravaged by a band of Goths who had crossed the border with imperial permission but had then rebelled. Refugees flocked to Milan, and there was news of many captives for whom the Goths were demanding ransom. So you had refugees coming into Milan, where Ambrose was the bishop, and then you had captives that were taken by the Goths, and the Goths were demanding a ransom from Milan. So you had a sort of two-sided dilemma here. 
Ambrose's response was to order that funds be raised for the refugees and for ransoming the captives by melting some of the golden vessels and other ornaments the church possessed. This created a firestorm of criticism, particularly among the Arians who were eager to find him at fault and accused him of sacrilege. Here was Ambrose's response to these accusations. He said this, It is better to preserve for the Lord souls rather than gold. He who sent the apostles without gold also gathered the church without gold. The church has gold not to store it, but to give it up, to use it for those who are in need. It is better to keep the living vessels than the golden ones. This was an amazing stand because you remember the church had become immensely wealthy and had adopted both in terms of its architecture and in terms of all the ornaments that the church was filled with and the manner of worship and the ways that the bishops arrayed themselves in worship. It was, it was like a, an imperial court, and it had all the accoutrements of that, and even so much so that, that they would, they would uh, you know, ignore the suffering all around them, even in the midst of all that. And as I said, on a few occasions, Ambrose even publicly rebuked Um, the emperor, and called him to repentance. I mean, he literally publicly rebuked him and called him to repentance over what was a really a a vile and grave injustice that resulted in the loss of many, many, many lives. Let me just read you the little excerpt here on page 223. I didn't take the whole thing down. Let's see. There had been a riot at Thessalonica, and the commandment of the city had been killed, the commandant, excuse me, of the city had been killed by the rioters. Ambrose, who knew the irascible temperament of the emperor, went to him and counseled moderation. Theodosius, the emperor, seemed convinced, but later his wrath was rekindled, and he decided to make an example of the disorderly city. He sent word that the riot had been forgiven. And then by his army, his order, the army trapped those who had gathered at the circus or arena to celebrate the imperial pardon and slaughtered some 7,000 of them. So a real act of treachery on the part of the emperor. He, he feigns some kind of imperial pardon, gets them all into a big arena, and then slaughters them. 7,000. Upon learning of these events, Ambrose resolved. Now this, this is the emperor, okay? Ambrose resolved to demand clear signs of repentance from the emperor. Although the details are not clear, one of Ambrose's biographers tells us that the next time Theodosius went to church in Milan, the bishop met him at the door, raised his hand before him, and said, Stop! A man such as you, stained with sin, whose hands are bathed in the blood of injustice, is unworthy until he repents to enter this holy place and to partake of communion. At that point, some courtiers threatened violence, but the emperor acknowledged the truth in Ambrose's words and gave public signs of repentance. He also ordered that from that time on, if he ever decreed that someone be put to death, the execution be delayed for 30 days. After that clash, relations between Theodosius and Ambrose were increasingly cordial. Finally, when the emperor knew that death was near, he called to his side the only man who had dared to censure him in public. So this is a major, major stand that Ambrose took in the face of you know, the threat of death and peril, which really highlights the, the, the point that the church, in many respects, had lost this because 
And it, he goes on to talk about how he, some different quotes, how he realized that the dependence of the church on the emperor's gold made them obligated to look the other way with so many points of moral compromise and, and issues of justice and issues of serving the needs of those who are less fortunate or poor or, or sick, all these different things. So Ambrose basically established this, this demarcation point, even to, the, even to the level of confronting the emperor over his sin and calling him to repentance. In other words, just because you're the emperor doesn't mean that you have access to the church. These are not sort of one and the same thing. Your imperial governmental authority does not grant you entrance into the ministry and life of the assembled body of Christ. That's a, a strong, definitive statement that was totally uncharacteristic of what was going on in the church at this time. An amazing sort of contribution, an amazing stand. Well, just by way of kind of introduction, um, John Chrysostom, really his name is not John Chrysostom. His name is, his name, he's known historically as John of Constantinople, he was later given this name, John Chrysostom, which means golden-mouthed for his powerful oratory and preaching. He was known as a powerful uh, preacher, a powerful pulpiteer. And just a few quick uh, facts about him and one excerpt from the book just to kind of get your mind around his contribution. In 398, similar to Ambrose, not same circumstances, but in terms of the sentiment, he reluctantly didn't want it, but he reluctantly became the bishop of Constantinople. Now we're in the east of the empire, the most powerful city in the eastern part of the empire. And this is after he pursued the monastic disciplines. You know, he was isolated. He was pursuing, you know, spiritual disciplines of uh, asceticism, of self-denial, you know, not enjoying any kind of common uh, conveniences or luxuries. And that was part of his, his spiritual pursuit for six years. He finds his way back into sort of normal civilization and is ultimately, because of the power of his teaching and his influence in this way, he was ultimately appointed as the Bishop of Constantinople and reluctantly took the post. And his major contribution, similar again to Ambrose, but much more pointed in terms of, its, in terms of the rhetoric and the oratory and the public constant beating this horse over and over again from his, from his platform of, of instruction. He constantly went after the materialistic excesses of both the clergy, of the imperial court, and the people of the church. The elite, the ruling class, the, the existing clergy, no one was exempt. That the, the claims of Christ on a confessing believer... And the call to faithfulness and obedience and sanctification applied equally to everyone. And he preached that over and over again. And he went directly after, in particular, the material excesses and the immorality. At this point in time, in Constantinople, even you had priests who had made vows of, of, uh, of celibacy, but they kept women in their homes and they sort of sanctified. They, they have to look in the book to remember the name, but they gave them the sanctified name. And they were really just mistresses that they kept you know, the priests kept, um, even though they had taken a vow of celibacy. So there was total compromise, and it was completely accepted. 
it was it was a, had been a, it was a sort of a sanctified version of immorality and, and and priestly activity. But the excesses were confronted. Let me just read you an excerpt on that so you can get a flavor of of how Christensen confronted this. He said this at one point from the pulpit. The gold bit on your horse, the gold circlet on the wrist of your slave, the gilding on your shoes mean that you are robbing the orphan and starving the widow. When you have passed away, each passerby who looks upon your great mansion will say, How many tears did it take to build that mansion? How many orphans were stripped? How many widows wronged? How many laborers deprived of their honest wages? Even death itself will not deliver you from your accusers. So he was fierce about confronting these excesses and really, in a similar vein, the kind of excesses that led to the complete ignoring of the needs of real people around them, whether it be in a point of, of temporary or momentary crisis uh, like Ambrose had to deal with or whether it would be an ongoing need of impoverished and downtrodden people around them. Now, as I said, these were men of their times. So there was, there was, there's plenty of things that we could talk about that we would not view as in alignment with our doctrine and with our theology. But I just want to, it made me think of, and just kind of closing, we're going to come back around, we're going to talk briefly about Jerome, and then we're going to spend some time with Augustine, really talking a lot about the, uh, the conflict with Pelagius, because that has major ramifications for Reformation doctrine and that kind of thing. <clears throat> but I just want to, I just want to remind you of a few passages of Scripture that I think are helpful for us to think about when we think about, when, we, when we're looking at people that we admire, when we're, when we're reading people that we think well of, or when we're, we're impressed or inspired by people either contemporary or from history that, that are, are really compelling us in a certain way. Um, and I would point you to 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, this is a familiar passage. The Apostle Paul starts off by saying, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he's calling out their immaturity for what they're doing, that I'll, it'll describe in just a moment. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So in one case, the Apostle Paul is challenging the Corinthians for allowing their sense of loyalty and devotion to land on a man. Even though the men that he names here were highlighted in other places as faithful to the Scriptures, faithful to the Gospel, and worthy of emulation. In fact, in chapter 11... The Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that 
He wants them to, to follow his example. Where is that? Oh, yeah, I totally skipped that. I was looking at, point, at verse 2. Yeah, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's not the only place he says that, by the way. So, on one hand, the Apostle Paul is saying, be imitators, of, in other words, you, we need examples. We need human examples that teach us, that instruct us, that follow us. But we must keep that in discerning, balance, and check, and recognize that we follow the example of people insofar as they are following the example of Christ. That we also, in the in the... Chapter 3 passage, we recognize that these are merely servants. These are merely men. And they are watering, they're planting, they're watering, but it's God who's going to give the growth. It's God who's going to do the actual work of the heart. So as we continue to look at some of these men, and we, we look at some of their contributions, and as you think about how you admire different people, authors and teachers and pastors and, and that kind of thing, that you maintain a proper perspective on what your devotion is centered on. A proper discernment about what your devotion is centered on. And the fact of the matter is, is that men fail. Men fall. Men disappoint. I've heard many, many times of instances where people of high reputation have done something that is just sort of normal course, they're human, they just kind of, they, they were maybe disrespectful or they were not kind or, or whatever, and it's crushing to someone who's held them in such high spiritual regard to think that that person, you know, is not capable of such things. And so I just would caution us as we think about these different people who have contributed greatly to the cause of Christ, both historically and even in our, in our current experience, that we look to them we follow their example as they follow the example of Christ, but we recognize that really it's ultimately about Christ, and it's about the glory of God, and it's about the ministry of the gospel, and it's about the truth of Scripture that is our primary or really only source of authority when it comes to matters of life and godliness. That's all I have. Uh, we got to conclude. Any final thoughts or questions before we conclude? All right, let's pray.